I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is the ICRC Humanitarian Law and Policy Blog, Audio Edition. Human Shields Under IHL A Path Towards Excessive Legalization. Human shields constitute part of the reality of contemporary armed conflicts, primarily fought in urban contexts. As such, they pose a host of complex legal issues, notably for destabilizing the traditional categorizations of International Humanitarian Law, or IHL. In this post, part of our special series on urban warfare, Zoe Lavazani, PhD candidate and researcher in international law, describes the current state of affairs within IHL when it comes to human shields and indicates why a legal vocabulary can often be inappropriate and obscure the political dimension of human shielding. Human shielding, which, under customary law, designates the, quote, intentional co-location of military objectives and civilians or persons hors de combat with the specific intent of trying to prevent the targeting of those military objectives, unquote, is far from new. However, two factors in particular account for the fact that it continues to stimulate heated debates in the legal arena and beyond. First, the urbanization of contemporary battlefields increases the risks for civilians. In this context, the vocabulary of human shielding is often employed for deciphering and or justifying civilian casualties. Second, human shields unsettle the core conventional binary distinction between civilians and combatants, and thus put into question key assumptions within international humanitarian law. Human Shields and the Obligations of the Parties to the Conflict As with most key issues in IHL, this one is primarily addressed in terms of the obligations of parties to the conflict. It is explicitly prohibited by IHL to use prisoners of war and protected persons under the Fourth Geneva Convention as human shields. Additional Protocol 1 stipulates that neither the civilian population at large nor individual civilians shall be used to render certain points or areas immune from military operations. While the ICRC has identified the prohibition to use human shields as a customary rule applicable in international and non-international conflicts alike. Further, the statute of the International Criminal Court criminalizes such use in international armed conflicts. Clear as this prohibition may be, drawing a line between a use of human shields and a lack of passive precautions can be challenging. Their difference lies in the existence of a specific intent to shield a military objective, a subjective element which does not sit well with the aspiration of IHL to objectively determine facts on the ground. Although it has been suggested that such intention is likely to be made apparent, this is hardly the case. Hence, as Nev Gordon and Nicola Perugini excellently describe, human shielding has often been discursively deployed for shifting the responsibility for an attack and allocating the blame to the defending party. As far as the obligations of the attacking party are concerned, AP1 provides that they remain undiminished, despite the use of human shields. 
although for IHL, shielding per se does not have the effect of removing the shielded object from the circle of legitimate military objectives. The attacking party must still take all feasible precautions for the protection of civilians, including those shielding the attacked objects or persons. Thorny questions are raised by the principle of proportionality according to which the attack may be deemed unlawful if, quote, expected to cause incidental loss of civilian life, injury to civilians excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated, unquote. Whether human shields are included in the civilian side of this calculus, and thus can potentially render an attack disproportionate, has been discussed as dependent on whether human shielding can ever amount to a direct participation in hostilities, or DPH. Are human shields directly participating in hostilities? For this assessment, some distinguish between voluntary and involuntary human shields. A second layer of intent is hereby introduced, this time on the level of the individual. The troubling issues of agency that are posed, and the difficulty to tell the two categories apart in the fog of war, are confirmed by the support for a presumption that a human shield is involuntary, unless clearly indicated otherwise. That involuntary human shields do not directly participate in hostilities seems undeniable. However, it has been suggested that they should somehow carry less weight than other civilians in the proportionality calculation. Not only is there no legal basis for such a proposition, but also, and importantly, it creates a sliding scale of value between humans, usually perpetuating pre-existing structural hierarchies. Besides, it further obscures an already blurry determination. Whether voluntary human shielding constitutes an act of DPH is more complicated. According to the ICRC, voluntary human shields could potentially be qualified as directly participating in hostilities only when posing a physical, rather than legal, obstacle to military operations. In other words, the mere fact of altering the parameters of the proportionality assessment to the detriment of the attacker, thus increasing the probability that the expected incidental harm would have to be regarded as excessive in relation to the anticipated military advantage, is insufficient. By contrast, physically obstructing ground operations, for example by giving physical cover to fighting personnel, might entertain this possibility. In my view, even then, voluntary human shields do not fulfill the requisite threshold of harm for their conduct to be qualified as DPH. Additionally, the language of DPH seems hardly appropriate for dealing with this nonviolent act of resistance. If voluntary human shields were to be seen as directly participating in hostilities, they would not only be excluded from the proportionality calculation and from precautionary measures to their benefit, but they could also be targeted separately from the shielded objective for the duration of the act of shielding. Although this possibility is often dismissed as a matter of fact, it is an unpalatable consequence of adopting this legal vocabulary for addressing human shielding. Perhaps, then, it is time to move beyond a feminized depiction of the civilian, who either stands still or partakes in the fighting risking her life, and view the human body as what human shielding indicates it to be, a political site par excellence. 
If you enjoyed this audio recording of the ICRC Humanitarian Law and Policy blog, make sure and subscribe on our website and rate and review us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.